Hello and welcome to GodPod. This GodPod is a slightly different edition from the usual. It comes from an evening we held at St Melitus College a little while ago, which was a bringing together for a theological conversation of some key theologians within the church today, in particular um, Professor Miroslav Wolf uh, from Yale University and Father Raniero Cantalamessa, who is the preacher to the papal household in Rome. And um, what we did was to come together for an evening of a conversation, but also a reflection on the key themes of uh, obedience, uh, freedom, and joy. So this is the first part of a two-part Godpod, if you like, uh, next time around. Uh, the discussion will be uh, made available, but in this Godpod, what you're going to hear is uh, three small, uh, short um, reflections on the three themes. So we'll begin with um, Father Raniero Cantalamessa uh, speaking on the theme of obedience. Then uh, I, that is Bishop Graham Tomlin, that's me, uh, will speak for a short while on freedom. And then uh, Professor Miroslav Wolf uh, will speak on the theme of joy. And uh, I hope you'll find that these three themes flow together really well and mutually help us understand the relationship between these vital themes in Christian life, these themes of obedience, freedom, and joy. So I hope you enjoy this God Pod uh, as we begin right now. At the beginning of our uh, Catholic Mass, we <clears throat> ask for pardon for our sins, at the beginning of this short message, I ask your forgiveness for all my English sins, which <laughs> will be many. <clears throat> After the Vatican Council, a well-known author in Italy wrote a book whose title was Obedience is No Longer a Virtue. I think obedience is still a virtue, but certainly its foundation and motivation needs to be rethought, reconsidered. And I want to share with you tonight how I have come to understand the virtue of obedience. It is relatively simple to discover the nature of Christian obedience. We just need to understand the specific concept of obedience by which Jesus is defined in scripture, the obedient one. We quickly discover that the true foundation of Christian obedience is not the abstract principle of Aristotle, according to which <clears throat> the inferior must uh, uh, submit to the superior, but instead it is an event. It is not found in the right reason, rectoratio, but it is found in the kerygma. It's not an idea of obedience. There is a, an act of obedience at the, at the bottom. The luminous sender which sheds light on the whole discussion on, of, of obedience is Romans 5.19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. 
Whoever knows the place that justification holds in the letter of the Romans will understand by this text the importance of obedience because there is a relationship between uh, uh, cause and effect. Obedience is the cause of justification, the obedience of Christ. As a child, Jesus obeyed his parents. Then, as an adult, he submitted to the Mosaic law, to the Sanhedrin, to Pilate. St. Paul, however, is not thinking of any of these kinds of obedience. He is thinking instead of Christ's obedience to the Father. Christ's obedience, as we have just uh, uh, heard from Paul, is considered to be the exact antithesis of Adam's disobedience. But who did Abam disobey? Certainly not his parents, <laughs> or the state, or laws. He disobeyed God. At the ori origin of all disobedience is disobedience to God. And at the or origin of all obedience, the obedience of, to God. St. Paul exhorts the Philippians saying, have this mind among you, which was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even a death on a cross. The obedience of Christ is then something we are called not just to contemplate, but also to imitate. As soon as we try to search through the New Testament for what the duty of obedience entails, we make the surprising discovery that obedience is almost always seen as obedience to God. There is, of course, also mention of all, uh, the, uh, all, all the other kinds of obedience. Obedience to parents, to masters, to superiors, to civil authorities, to every human institution, says Peter in his first letter. But this in a derived and secondary sense, the very noun obedience in Greek, ipakoe, is always used to indicate obedience to God, or in any event, instances that are uh, connected to God. St. Paul speaks uh, of obedience to the faith, obedience to the teaching, obedience to the gospel, obedience to truth, and, of course, obedience to Christ. But <clears throat> does it make sense today to speak about obedience to God after the new and living will of God manifested in Christ has been fully expressed and instituted in a whole series of laws and hierarchies? Is it permissible to think that after all this, there still are new wills of God that we might need to receive and fulfill. Yes, certainly. If the living will of God could be enclosed and objectified definitively in a series of laws, norms, and institutions, then the church would end up being a petrified church. 
only if we believe in, in, the, in a present and active lordship of the risen one or the church, only if we are deeply convinced that today as well as the psalm says, God the Lord speaks and does not keep silent. If we really believe that the Lord Jesus is alive, he never left the church. There was a, a, certain, a certain point, a, 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 an idea of the church, uh, very strange, just so Jesus had instituted the church, provided it with every means, sacraments, institutions, and then said to the church, now go to history, we, see, we shall see again at the parousia, when I come back at the end of the world. No, Jesus never did, 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 said, said this. He said, I will be with you all the time till the end of the world, with you, which means that he is here tonight with us, not just spiritually in a certain way. The more present in this hall, I'm not I, neither you, is Jesus Christ. So because Jesus is alive, <laughs> he speaks. And we need, the, our, our attitude must be one of obedience. It calls for an attentive listening to God who speaks in the church through the, his spirit, who illuminates the words of Jesus and the whole Bible, conferring authority to, on them and making them channels of the living will of God for us. Obeying God means simply to yield to the inner promptings, promptings of the Holy Spirit. To yield to the inner promptings of the Holy Spirit. But spiritual obedience to God does not deter obedience to visible and institutional authority, to the bishop, for instance. <laughs> on the contrary, on the contrary, it renews it, brings it to life to the point that obedience to human beings and rules becomes the criterion to judge if someone is obedient or not and if his or her obedience to God is genuine. There is an analogy between obedience and charity. The first commandment is to love God, but its litmus test is loving our neighbor. St. John writes, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The same must be said about obedience. If you do not obey the superior you see, how can you say you obey God whom you do not see? Obedience to God is the obedience that all can practice, whether subordinates or superior, religious or lay people. It has often been said that a person needs to know how to obey in order to be able to command. This is not just a common sense principle. It also, uh, it also has a, a theological rationale. It means that the true source of spiritual authority, 
resides more in obedience than in the title or the office that uh, one holds. Conceiving of authority as obedience means not being satisfied only with authority or the title, but aspiring to the authoritativeness that comes from having God behind you and supporting your decision. It means moving closer to the kind of authority that sprang from Christ's actions and made people ask themselves, what kind of authority is this? The atmosphere, the air around Jesus was permeated with a sense of authority. And the reason was because Jesus was in tune with the Father. His word was the word of the Father. When an order is given by a parent or a superior who strives to live in God's will, who has prayed first and does no personal stake to protect, but has in view only the good of the brother of, or of his own child, then the very authority of God acts as a buttress to that order or decision. If a challenge arises, God tells his representative what he said to Jeremiah one day. Behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord. In one of my last meditations to the Pope, precisely the last Lent, a few weeks ago, I quoted this text, and everybody understood that I applied to Pope Francis, who has many, many opponents. But the Lord says to, to him, I make you a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for, for I am with you, says the Lord. Saint Ignatius of Antioch gave this wise advice to Saint Polycarp, his disciple and colleague in, a, in the episcopate. Let nothing be done without your consent. But you don't do anything in your turn without God's consent. The best fruit of obedience to God is peace. The kind of peace everyone is aspiring to. Interior peace. This unshakable assurance in life. Rest is not found, says St. Augustine, if one does not consent to the will of God without resistance. And our poet, Dante Alighieri, I know there are some Italians, so for them I will quote in Italian this verse, because Dante Alighieri has a verse which summarizes this sense of St. Augustine, and is one of the most celebrated verses of divine comedy. In sua voluntate e nostra pace which in English would, say, would mean, um, <clears throat> and in his will is our tranquility. Thank you.
So the uh, second of our themes this evening is freedom. And I must confess to have had um, some struggles with the idea of freedom as a Christian because for many years, I guess like many of us, um, I, I was aware that the Christian faith speaks of freedom a great deal. The Bible talks about freedom. We are talking about freedom in Christ. Uh, and yet also, we uh, also talk a great deal about, uh, about law, the law of God, about obedience to God, about the will of God, about submission to the will of God. And when you think about freedom... Um, those things don't quite seem to go together. So how can we be free when we're also being told to obey the will of God and to do what we're told and everything else? And I think what I've tried to do over the last um, few years is to tease out this um, uh, like a paradox within uh, freedom itself. And I think try to identify what are the, some of the key differences between our, our quite secular understandings of freedom, the, the, the kind of ideas of freedom that we tend to kind of imbibe from our culture around, and uh, more Christian ideas of freedom. And to try and summarize my thinking on this um, would be along these lines. We, we have a, a very influential uh, secular idea of freedom, which comes from uh, a number of key thinkers over the past few centuries, people like um, Hobbes and uh, John Locke and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and, uh, and John Stuart Mill and others, which basically, to cut a long story short and put it simply, is that freedom is the freedom of the individual uh, to choose what to do with their own time and talents and abilities and money, as long as that individual does not infringe upon the freedom of others. So we prize individual freedom, individual, individual freedom to choose what we want to do, how we want to spend our time and energies and so on. But we place some limits on that because we want to make sure we live in a cohesive society where we don't have total chaos, everybody doing exactly what they want. Uh, so we set some limits on that, which in the limits are that we do not infringe upon others. So for John Stuart Mill, for example, you have the principle of harm. You can, um, the only way in which you can infringe upon someone else's freedom is if uh, they are going to cause harm to someone else. And as an example of that idea. So here is this very influential idea of freedom that we have. And I think that's largely the one that most of us imbibe most of the time. Freedom surely is freedom from any constraint, freedom to do and to be who I choose, as long as I do not infringe upon other people's rights and freedom at the same time. But I guess the more I thought about that, the more I think there is a, a problem at the heart of that view of freedom in our um, understanding. And that is what it does to our relationships with one another. Because what it effectively does is it creates this space around me where I am free uh, to operate and to act as I choose to act, as long as I don't infringe upon someone else's freedom. But it sets up that other person as, at best, a limitation, or at worst, a threat to my freedom. So the other person, my neighbor, is someone who is a little bit of an irritant, because I might like to do this, but actually that would be infringing upon their freedom, and therefore I have to stop doing it. Or even worse, it may be that that person might try to infringe upon my freedom and stop me doing what I want to do. In other words, it sets up relationships of potential conflict and opposition. And uh, I would suggest one of the reasons why we seem to become much more polarized, much more kind of conflictual in our public life, largely derives from this view of freedom. Now, if that is our secular view of freedom, how do we understand freedom as Christians? Well, at the heart of the gospel is a declaration freedom. We find it again and again in the New Testament, that through Jesus Christ, we find freedom. 
We find freedom from guilt. We find freedom from sin. We find freedom from the powers of evil. We find freedom from shame and fear. And so Christ sets us free. And yet at the same time, that is not seen as freedom to do as we choose. Instead, I would suggest Christian freedom is not freedom to do as I wish with my gifts and talents and abilities and money, but it is the freedom to become the person I was created to be. Now, in our society, we tend to think of that as self-defined. I can be whoever I want to be. And yet in Christian faith, I think we have a very clear idea of what human beings are meant to be. And that's summed up, of course, in Jesus' answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? To love God and to love your neighbor. In other words, freedom for the Christian, I would suggest, is freedom to become a person capable of love for God and love for your neighbor. And freedom is freedom from all that would prevent us from becoming that kind of person. Freedom from those internal wrestlings, those internal impulses of jealousy and fear and pride and lust and anger and all those things that jostle inside us, that inhibit us from loving our neighbor and instead turn us in upon ourselves. It's freedom from all those external things that would stop us from becoming those kind of people. Oppression. An economy that tells us that we cannot be complete unless we own this or that or the other. Poverty, violence, those things that cramp us and hold us back from being the kind of people able to give ourselves in love to God and one another. And I would suggest this idea of freedom. Freedom as the freedom to become someone capable of love for God and neighbor transforms our relationships with one another. My neighbor now becomes not a threat or a limitation, but my neighbor becomes a gift. Because without my neighbor, I cannot exercise this love, which is the purpose of my life. If I'm to be someone who is capable of love, I need someone to practice on. God suddenly becomes for me not this inhibitor of my freedom, telling me all these laws that I have to obey. Instead, God becomes for me the giver of freedom. In fact, the giver of everything. And the more I realize all that I have is a gift from God, I am simply the recipient of those things, not the owner of them, the more likely it is that I am not to hold on to those things tightly and be able to give generously to my neighbor. Our culture tells us time and time again that we become free when we find ourselves, find out who you are, discover your inner self. It's striking, isn't it, how Jesus says that we become free when we lose ourselves for him and for the gospel. We become free when we lose our self-obsession, our absorption with ourself, our fascination with ourselves. And we discover again, instead, a fascination with God and with our neighbor. Freedom is found not in autonomy, freedom from one another, it's freedom precisely found in the bonds that tie us to God and to our neighbor. That, I suggest, is what Christian freedom is. Thank you. Uh, I must say that I'm uh, rejoicing to be here with you, but I have to say here that I'm particularly rejoicing 
that I'm sharing this stage and speaking together with Father Cantalamesa. Um, the reason for this is that for about nine years, he and I once a year met together in the Roman Catholic Pentecostal Dialogue, and I have uh, enjoyed his company and these conversations immensely. But I think for me, more importantly, uh, he has been instrumental in advising me and setting me free to embark upon a journey of being a theologian in a space that's broader than just my own home country, uh, former Yugoslavia and Croatia. And uh, I can say that it, a week doesn't pass that I do not think of Father Cantalamesa and thank him for his advice in that garden in Venice where we spend an hour talking about uh, my calling and my future. Thank you very much. Great joy. So I'm a theologian, but let me start uh, this, my little talk about joy by being little bit of a philosopher. Now, I want to tell you, maybe, maybe psychologist, uh, I want to tell you that joy is not merely a feeling. Joy is an emotion. And it's an emotion which has an intentional, there's philosophy, uh, has an intentional object. You always rejoice over something or about something. You never just rejoice. It's not possible to take a joy pill and rejoice. Though it's possible to take some kind of a pleasure pill, right, and just feel good. And that's the difference between joy and simple feeling good or simple pleasure. So you always rejoice, we always rejoice over some good that has befallen me. Normally, I rejoice over some good that I haven't quite expected that will become mine. I rejoice over the good that has become, come to me as a matter of grace, as a matter of good fortune. That elicits joy. My heart starts dancing and my body opens up and I rejoice because this extraordinary thing, maybe small but nonetheless extraordinary, has happened to me. A child is born. True, it happens 250 times a minute all over the world as a very much a natural process. And yet you see a child and suddenly you're struck by the miracle of something absolutely extraordinary happening to you and joy is born in your heart. Or to take a biblical example, you are at the edge of the Red Sea and the Pharaoh's forces are behind you and you don't know exactly what you're going to do and suddenly the waters part and you walk through the dry land and when you're on the other side, what happens? Miriam, Moses' sister, takes the tambourine and starts dancing because something extraordinary a good has happened to us. That's when we rejoice. Now, it's not always easy to rejoice. There are many circumstances in life in which make us lose our ability to joy, to, to rejoice, and ability for joy. But I think today we find ourselves in a cultural 
moment or cultural epoch, if you want, in which it is particularly difficult to rejoice. One way to describe a culture of late modernity is to say that this is a time in which nothing is good enough. Now, sociologists describe this as a kind of culture of dynamic stabilization. By dynamic stabilization, it means what we knew in the economy always to be the case. Unless you are progressing, unless you are making more money, unless you are growing, you're dying. But that happens to be the case in more than just in the field of economy. Generally in life, we seem to be under pressure in order to survive, we need to be increasing. And therefore, any situation in which we find ourselves isn't quite good enough, it can be improved. Things are not good enough, they could be better. Somebody has a better thing than you do, right? And therefore, things can be better. Somebody's gonna come up with a thing that's better than the one you have, and therefore, things that you have are not good enough, or you are not good enough, I am not good enough. I teach in, at an elite institution, all the kids there are absolutely very smart. But they all compare each other, uh, themselves to each other, and they all feel that they are kind of losers. Right? They haven't quite yet achieved, and they're in the struggle of achieving themselves, and that's the situation in which we are as human beings. We see ourselves as sovereign individuals and free, in that sense, owners of our own action that need to achieve ourselves, and we achieve ourselves in the context of competition, and we achieve ourselves in a world in which almost everything is possible, and almost nothing is prohibited. And there is absolutely no way to win. You're always an underachiever. <laughs> now, when nothing is good enough, how do you rejoice? How do you find joy when always things could be better and yet joy wants you to stay in the moment and celebrate the goodness of what is right there and what you are experiencing. I think one of the great messages or one of the ways to think about the message of the gospel, it is to say that it is the message of joy. Christian faith in a unique way, maybe we can say, is a faith of joy. I want to underscore this um, by noting th three features. One of them is obviously Jesus Christ came proclaiming the good news. Something good is being announced and something good that you don't have to earn, but something good that is coming to you as a gift. And that is a source of joy. You don't put it in more contemporary language. You don't have to achieve yourself. You have always already been achieved. And therefore, you always already have reason to rejoice of the, because of the goodness that is yours. Now, that sense of always already having been achieved opens our, our eyes as well to see that the world around us 
is suffused with goodness. Notwithstanding the message that, no, that nothing is good enough, fundamentally, many, many things are more than good enough. If we just have eyes to perceive the goodness, if we have patience to stay with the goodness of what is before us, to be able to celebrate it as what it truly is. You know, sometimes Christian faith is described as, a, as this grumpy faith that emphasizes original sin. Uh, you know, I am a friend of original sin, you know, because I see it all over the place. I see it also in, my, in myself. But more fundamental to the Christian faith that orig than original sin is original goodness. Indeed, you cannot understand sin as original sin without presupposing the goodness of creation. And it's this goodness of what is created by God that we learn to celebrate when we look at it through the eyes of the gospel. One final comment. Very often in the Bible, including that psalm that was read, uh, there is an injunction to, injunction to rejoice in the Lord. And for a long time, I wasn't quite sure what that might mean. You know? What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? And then it occurred to me uh, an unorthodox thought uh, that might look to you maybe as unorthodox thought. Uh, we rejoice over things that are good, right? That circumstances that are good. I propose to you that God is the most fundamental circumstance of our life. God is what is most fundamentally the case around us, which underpins any other and every other goodness that comes to us. It is there before us. It is there, will be there after us. In a sense, it's there or left, on the right. It's there everywhere around us. The most fundamental circumstance of our life is God. And God is the original goodness. It is therefore that we can rejoice in God as a source of all good things. It is therefore that we can rejoice in individual good things in the world, and it is therefore that we can rejoice in this incredible good news that the world will one day be a place of joy, place of righteousness, and place of peace. from St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.